Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. We are uh, already up to Parshat Vayishlach. I want to remind everybody that because we do these in advance, we here in Israel are still in the midst of a very difficult time. We are actually in Parshat Vayera. We're a few weeks ahead of you. So I'm hoping by the time you listen to this, things will already be much better. But I want you to understand the context in which we are speaking, because I think we're going to be getting content that is related to what's happening outside this cool little soundproof room. So first, I want to welcome... Oh, she's already an old hand at this. I think you might I think you might be in the lead. I don't know. I think so, Tzvi. Uh, Nechama Barish is here, my colleague and friend who teaches Talmud and Halakha and all sorts of interesting things, not just at Pardes, but other places as well. Welcome, Nechama. Thank you, Tzvi. It's a pleasure to be back for what I think is my fifth podcast. I think we owe you a sweatshirt or something or a Absolutely. mug. Absolutely. I deserve one. There actually is no, uh, what do they call it? There's no remuneration for no, this. This nothing. is all done out done of, with, uh, done with love, love of we Torah. Have, we have no gifts, no merchandise. No merch is no what merch. I'm looking for. Okay. So, uh, you know, in many ways, this Parsha, of course, is painfully appropriate for our time. You have Yaakov here trying to return home. He is confronted with a family member or brother, or he is worried he's going to be confronted with a family member or brother who might be actually fighting with his claim to his birthright and to uh, what he hopes to be his home and his place and his family. And he has now got to deal with these tremendous fears, both for himself, for his future, for his covenant with God. And that complexity and difficulty is what sets the stage for our Parsha. And as you know, Tzvi, I really didn't want to talk about that part of the Parsha. I have taught for many years the relationship between Yaakov and Esav, and I have been drawn to a reading in which I've often felt that Esav has been misunderstood, has been given the short end of the stick, he's been demonized, villainized, presented in a very negative light, and I've used Midrashim and reading of the text to show other ways of reading in which really there's no blame on one brother over the other. There's a very complex relationship between twin brothers fighting for identity, and that in the Midrashic way, we like to create a binary, the good brother, the bad brother, but really it's far more complex. And I would say for the first time, I've come to this story with a far darker reading of the story than I've ever had in the last 20 years of teaching it. I had really seen it as Yaakov coming with really a chip on his shoulder, a sense of having wronged his brother. And so in his mind, Esav can only be coming out to meet him with enmity, and that Yaakov misreads Esav's intention, and that the whole reunion is really a joyful, emotional reunion, and that Yaakov had nothing, well, he did have what to fear, but he misunderstood the ability of Esav to forgive. And I'm coming with a very different reading this time. Well, be before we explore your reading, which is perfectly understandable, first of all, I think it's a beautiful example of how we read Torah differently depending upon where we are in our lives and the world that we're in. And the new readings don't cancel out the old. I have no doubt that someday you will teach 
that she were on how Asav has been unfairly demonized and, and the Shadal's perspective on Yaakov. He was his heart wasn't open to the fact the brother really was coming in peace and he was mistaken. And that's a very important message in certain times. But it's also understandable given the times that we're in. We're at war. Israel's at war. And from what I hear from some people in in North America and other places, there's a feeling that the Jewish people as a whole are under attack. And so it's understandable that you might have a different reading of what's going on here. And Yaakov's fears might resonate with you differently as yes, a daughter even, of Yaakov. Let's just put it that way. I'll even go back. I grew up in, you know, in a home my grandfather was born around 1920, and his perception of Asav was a very negative perception that you can never trust Asav, that there will always be enmity between Yaakov and Asav. And as someone who grew up in the 1970s and 80s, or, you know, and moved to Israel in the 90s, um, I had a very privileged upbringing. I never encountered anti-Semitism, I have to say. And I thought that he was too, I don't know if the word is dated or, you know, come on, Zadie, we don't have that enmity anymore. We really can live in peace with one another. And and I have to say, I'm hearing his voice in my head reminding me that there is a constant enmity between Esau and Yaakov, and it deeply saddens me that there was truth to what he was saying. So let, let's unpack this reading then. Just to remind everybody where we are, uh, Yaakov is on his way back home. Uh, he left a single man, and now he's coming back with this large family, multiple wives, lots of kids. And he is also trying to return to his father's house, right? He's trying to come back to the covenant that he was told he's a part of, and he's the inheritor of his father's house, his grandfather's legacy. And yet he is aware or thinks he is aware that there's this major obstacle in his way, and that is the brother from whom he apparently stole, didn't steal a blessing who he connived into selling a birthright. There's a painful, difficult family history awaiting him. And I'll even add to that. First of all, I think he deceived Yitzchak. I don't think anyone can argue with that reading into giving him the birthright. And at the end of Toldot, he's running away from Esav, who has threatened to kill him. In other words, the story is very dark at that point. There's been really a rupture that has been engineered by the mother, meaning the whole thing is very, very messy. And he's running away from a brother who has basically said, I'm going to wait until my father dies, and then I'm going to come kill the brother who stole from me what is most precious, my identity, my role in the family, and so on. So he has what to fear? He does have what to fear because he wronged his brother. And he knows that his brother was very angry to the point of wanting to kill him. One of the things I often say when I teach the story in better times is that Esav threatens, but he also says he's going to wait until his father dies. His father has still not died. In other words, his love for his father really guides him, even morally. And it's unthinkable that he'll do this in his father's lifetime. And to me, we, we often overlook that, his real fidelity and loyalty and love for Yitzchak, which will allow him to pull back and put up with these intense feelings of, of hatred and anger in order not to hurt his father. So, you know, that suggests that Esav is trainable, directable, has some sort of compass, and that's his father. So given that, why is Yaakov afraid and how does he manage his fear in this story? So I think Yaakov is afraid because it's been 22 years. He last left his brother really broken and crying over the deception, saying to his father, father, don't you have a blessing for me? And his father basically saying, no, I, I gave it to your brother, right? Like it's a very painful scene. And he knows he's caused that pain. 
right? So I think in Yaakov's mind, Esav is still broken, hurt, betrayed, angry. And even though Yaakov has built a family, right, it's from a psychological perspective, it's understood that he hasn't moved on at all from that moment in the rupture with his brother. And so he is afraid. What the story tells us is that Esav has moved on. Well, but he's also moved on with 400 men, which I think also might have given Yaakov pause to think, wait a minute, why is he coming towards me with an army. He's not coming towards me with a bunt cake and uh, his wife and kids for a family picnic. It says he's coming towards me with 400 men. Now, obviously, it depends how you want to read that. It could be he's a military leader. This is his tribe, and he travels everywhere with them. He wants to offer Yaakov protection to escort him back to where he's going. But from Yaakov's perspective, it seems that hearing that information, especially through the lens that you mentioned, it probably just increased his sense of fear of what was coming. Absolutely. He definitely sees Asaph as coming out with an army. And what I try to challenge my students with is, was that a necessary reading, that it was an army rather than, like you said, a tribe coming out to either greet and celebrate Yaakov's return, a tribe coming out to give Yaakov and his family protection, meaning there were multiple ways you could see this enormous group coming out to meet Yaakov. And Yaakov is afraid, and we understand why he's afraid, but we're also prepared to be surprised. So I want to pursue two points here, and one's a really tough question, but I'm going to surface it. You have two readings in front of you, it seems, where there's this very human reading, which shows a lot of empathy and understanding for why Esau was so angry all along, and why Yaakov perhaps was projecting a lot of his fear onto an Esau who didn't necessarily deserve all that harsh judgment about his character and who he was. And even the Midrashic saying that Rashi brings Esav Sona Yaakov, right? Esav hates Yaakov. And that's why I know that your Zadie probably quoted to you a hundred times. That was an Eastern European mantra, if you will. And there's a piece you saying, you know what? I want to push back against that Midrash. Esav doesn't deserve that. And Yaakov, you could even argue during the story, discovers that that wasn't Esav's attention. He doesn't kill him. On the other hand, there's this other reading where Yaakov is terrified. He's confronted with an army, and he believes that army wants to do him harm. And he is apparently not sure if God is going to rescue him from the situation that he's in. And he has no idea how to put this covenantal promise together with his fear and uncertainty about the future. They're pulling him in different directions. He's preparing for war. He's asking God for help. And uh, this reading of the text would sort of suggest, yeah, he really better be. If he intends to survive and he intends to move forward, I'm glad he didn't have this, uh, and forgive the word, a Pollyannish take on who Esau was, because he's protecting his family and he is aiming towards his own survival. So you have these two readings, and of course, I can't help but put in front of you these two readings, in a way, may describe where you were October 6th and where you are on October 7th. Yeah, and I absolutely think so. Um, there's no question when I read of Yaakov's fear and distress and his beginning to prepare and his dividing the people with him into the camps, into the different camps where he puts his uh, his family, his wives, his children in the safer camp, right? And 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 nonetheless, everyone leaves. He has everyone cross over the Yabok 
He has everyone leave. He ends up being alone, right? He's trying to protect everyone, and yet there is a pecking order. And if we're honest, there's always a pecking order. There's always those we're going to try to protect the most, even as we want to protect everyone. You know, it's something I've thought a little bit about, even in the context of my teaching, and we have all these students here without their families, and it's made me very vulnerable in the sense of, if it comes to it, I'm going to go home and protect my family, right? And yet here I am responsible for these students as well. And it forces you to confront unpleasant facts about, you know, what you do when you start thinking of survival and who you're going to like, you know, put in front of who in order to ensure survival. And Yaakov is doing it and he's doing it very decisively and almost clinically in terms of thinking about what his camps have to look like if there is, uh, God forbid, a war. Another thing that I find very powerful is Rashi, and this gets picked up over the centuries, that he's not just afraid of being killed. He's afraid that he's going to have to kill and that he may end up having to kill Asav, he may end up having to kill people in Asav's camp, and he's equally terrified at that possibility. It's not where he wants to find himself. And so that really echoes another midrash in the Tanhuma around Avraham waking up the day after the war with Stom and the kings, and that he's concerned he killed both righteous and evil men when he goes out to war, and God has to comfort him and say, no, it's okay. And right, those midrashim so powerfully resonate with me right now, the idea that our children are out fighting and um, and what are they being asked to do. And the fact that our humanism pulls us in one direction, which is concern for the well-being of our adversary and our desire for survival or our fear for own survival uh, make us think, how am I going to defeat and destroy this adversary who wants to hurt me or harm me. And the Midrash saying Yaakov is literally pulled in both directions at the same time. And it's his brother, right? So this story is heightened by who is he going to be confronting? It's not going to be Avram going out to save his nephew and confronting kings he has no real fidelity to. And even there, he's concerned that he might have killed innocent people. Here you have Yaakov about to confront his brother who he's wronged, and the fear of both killing or being killed is very, very powerful. So let's talk a little bit about the two episodes that sort of might even reflect these two different readings that you have cultivated. There is the episode at night. And by the way, it always, I think there's even a redoc that says that Yaakov is actually running away, that he doesn't, he decides and he can't confront his brother. Wow. And the, and the confrontation happens anyways. Well, the, the question is, right, Rashi's he's going back for those pachim tanim, right. right? That's like even worse. You know, it's like it falls into these anti-Semitic metaphors of, oh no, I left, I left 20 cents worth 20 of perfume behind. over there. I got to yeah. run back and get it. So the idea that even he has tremendous doubts about his ability to carry on this confrontation, but you have this scene where he battles, right? He battles this ish. And this Ish is famously associated with Esav, and he has to fight. And he has to fight the whole night, and he has to force the Ish to bless him. And that's the episode of confrontation. But then the next day, when he actually, the, the flesh and blood Esav, they hug, they kiss. Esav couldn't be nicer. He gives back all the gifts that Yaakov sent him. He offers to escort his family to come back to his house, and he'll take care of them. So in a way, the story itself in this very strange way, splits. Yeah, and I, I actually, something came up for me as you were talking about Yaakov 
possibly running away, that moment where he turns back, right? He sent everyone ahead and he's organized them in a certain formation and he's done all the preparation as if they're going to war. And then he turns back. And um, what came up for me are all the people who ran down south, right? The sirens went off and the amount of people that ran into battle, right? That ran in to save their sisters, their their son, their, their wife, and so on. Some of whom, we love the stories of the survival and we know some of them didn't survive. But what do you do in that moment, the moment before the battle or the moment you recognize you're running into battle and Yaakov turns back and yet then he, of course, goes forward. And I think there's something very real about that, about that moment of, wait, I don't think I can do this. And then his finding in whatever happened at night with that unknown, unnamed angel, giving him the strength to recognize that, in fact, he can. And so it just all of those scenes I've had since October 7th just started running through my head of, you know, what does that look like? That moment of both retreating and then charging forward into the unknown, not knowing what's going to be asked of you and possibly being killed or having to kill. So that was very powerful. That And those stories came- are remarkable of even soldiers who just decide to go down there, yeah. who heard something was going on, not because they have family down there, but they said, oh, Someone's got to go down. They literally got in their cars with whatever weapon they had. And apparently because they did that, they saved thousands of other countless lives. And so that is... Yes, absolutely. And I particularly love the 60 plus year olds because I'm not quite that age, but it they went down there and they were like Rambo. And uh, again, just going with whatever private weapons they had, going down to save people. And you're right, they ended up stopping all of those volunteers who ran down unofficially were very significant in stopping more of, of the killing. But then the next question you asked me is that moment of meeting, right? And so really, Yaakov also has a whole protocol of all the gifts that he's sending, and then the bowing, he bows seven times right before him, abject supplication, right? This idea of like prostrating before Asaph. Calls him my Lord. My Lord, anything he can do, diplomacy, right, at an extreme. And then Asaph surprises him and surprises us. And Asaph kisses him and hugs him and cries. And I think there's something very genuine in the tears, more than maybe even the hugging and kissing. We know that there are six dots above the word in the Torah scroll above, and he kissed him. And the Midrash there really goes to, you know, goes to work at Asav saying, well, he really tried to bite him and Yaakov's neck turned to marble, right? Even that would di- was disingenuous. It was like a vampire. They're coming so to, tough on They're him. so tough on Asav, but no one can take away the tears. Like everyone acknowledges that the tears were really genuine, right? The kissing might not have been genuine, but the tears were genuine. And I feel like, again, in my reading on October 6th, I'm very moved by that moment that Yaakov has misread Asav. Asav has grown up. Asav has built a tribe, has incredible wealth, has wives, has children. And he comes really genuinely with emotion to reconcile, to meet his brother and to say, hey, I turned out okay. My story ended well. And that was my October 6th reading that sometimes I even would read the story and tears would well up at that moment of like Asaph saying, my brother is back. And of course, he then invites Yaakov immediately to come home with him, right? Like, come back with me. And that's where, you know, Yaakov continues to feel a sense of, wait, maybe this is too fast. 
past. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we can really pick up, you know, at an earlier stage. He lies to him. Exactly. He He, lies to him and says, I'll be showing up a little later. And then, of course, in that reading, you feel, what is he doing? His brother wants to be close and he's slamming the door on it. And now your next reading. My next reading is that Yaakov recognizes that Esav, with all of the emotion of the moment, and it is an emotional moment, once that emotion kind of dies down, the enmity, the hostility, the sense of betrayal, the fact that he feels that Esav is never going to be able to forgive him, there's always going to be hostility and enmity. And he protects himself by saying, you know what, you go ahead, I'll join you later with no intention of joining him. I will say they do bury Yitzchak together, which I feel is interesting, right? They come together without enmity to bury the father that certainly Esav deeply loved. But they never really, they never really have a relationship, right? The moment for that is only in this parsha, and then it disappears. And so my reading on October seventh is that there can be no reconciliation and true love between Yaakov and Esav. Well, so this is, uh, yeah, we did get dark, yeah, you know. But uh, I think it's appropriate to my mood. I don't want to speak for anybody else, but I, I just want to point out, you're you're suggesting here within these dual readings and within all these moments of both struggle and apparent reconciliation, there are two pathways of takeaway here, right? One is that uh, I need to maintain my faith in humanity and open myself up to those relationships and trust that people change and, and attitudes change and there's a shared future. Or I can I, that would be naive and dangerous and ill-advised. And the only way I'm going to make it through is if I don't do that, but rather um, stay permanently on my guard, understand that my enemies are my enemies, and that's the only way I'm going to survive. And I I think both readings are possible, and they both, you could argue, maybe balance themselves out. Like one was your October 6th reading, one was your October 7th, maybe your, you know, August 2026 reading will balance out again to something else. Yeah, I certainly hope so. You know, I think that I really do have a belief that human beings are all created in the image of God and that there's some sort of potential commonality. There's a language we share, a language for love of uh, fellow human beings, a language searching for, for meaning in life. And this has really shattered that a little bit in the sense that I recognize there are actually there are actually people who we do not have a common language with or a common destiny with. We don't share the same values, the same search for godliness, for meaning, for for love, uh, for lack of a better word, and that there is more evil uh, than I had thought was possible. The idea that I'll just share, uh, if I can, uh, one of the Midrashim I come back to is the idea that when God went to create Adam, God saw that both righteous people and evil people were going to come from Adam. And God has a moment of truth, if you will, of reckoning. Do I create a creature that can be both tremendously good and tremendously evil? And God kind of pushes from God's consciousness the evil and focuses on the righteous. And I think that has been both an explanation perhaps and a comfort in that human beings are capable of unbelievable acts of of evil and violence and terror, and yet they're also capable of tremendous acts of good. And I've seen tremendous good in the moments since the war has come out. And I'd like to think that 
the Ace of Yaakov dynamic, the enmity between the two doesn't have to remain enmity because Ace was also created in the image of God. And I'd like to see Ace also doing or bringing good and light into the world together with, with Yaakov. All right. I sense some hopefulness in there in spite I have of to everything. End with hopefulness. Good. I, I need that too. I just want to come back to one other point because I think it, it speaks to a lot of us, and that's uh, Yaakov praying. Uh, and people like to point out, it's even, it's, I think commentators even ask, right, why is Yaakov praying? He's got the promise from God. He's got the destiny, the covenant. Every God told him what his plan for him was. Why is he praying, and how does he pray from fear? Yeah, thank you for going back to that part of the story. Uh, we say that Yaakov does a few things. He prepares for war, he prays, and he protects his family. He kind of isolates his family uh, to protect them. And why doesn't he just trust God is going to defend him or do the right thing? You know, the question is, what is the the purpose of prayer? And what are we doing when we pray? And I think, you know, I've been struggling a lot with prayer since this war. Not, I've never thought prayer was a magic antidote. I know there are some people who really feel God responds to their prayers, and I envy that. I envy those who can feel a direct causal relationship between prayer and the outcome, good or bad, of something. I think I know that I pray in order to connect to the soul within myself, right? This idea of through the language of prayer, I go inward and feel something on good days, right? And it, I just want to make it clear, I pray every day, and this does not happen as often as it should. But to me, the purpose of prayer is making room for God in my life and for my soul, right? The idea of speaking to my soul through the language of prayer. And I wonder if Yaakov, in this moment of fear, is reaching both within Yaakov's self, and of course, praying outward to accept whatever the outcome will be as being part of this relationship with the world and with God. So I think in fear, we turn to God. And I think for each individual person, the question of what comforts us, the idea that God is with us in the good and in the bad, I think is comforting. The idea that I somehow go inward and find strength within myself from the soul within me when I'm confronting difficulty and challenge. Or I'm curious to know how you would respond. I mean, I think prayer is a way of calming down his fear. You know, I've been struggling terribly. I remember my first thought when our synagogue said, we're going to do a Vinu Malkenu at each Tfilan. We're going to add this and that. And my first thought was, I've been saying a Vinu Malkenu for the last, I don't know how many days. <laughs> right. I, I got up for Sephardi Slichot for a month. I've been praying my whatever off. And look what happened. There's this sense of, so now... A couple extra psalms are going to make, that was really my reaction. I was very bitter and annoyed and, and frustrated. I think in some ways I'm still there. You know, maybe sometimes we pray not because we're certain God is there, but we're hoping that God is there. And uh, we're expressing the need even without any real sense that God is there at all. But we're putting that need out there, I don't know, with some kind of hope that uh, God is still in this story with us in some way. But I, I think that I've been doing a lot of praying through gritted teeth, and it's been very hard. But I also feel like, for me, prayer is a way of connecting to the community around me and being with uh, the people that I'm with and, and, and showing solidarity with my community. And uh, But it's been a struggle. You know, I think I, I wish I had Yaakov Zamuna that God was listening. And I think I'll add one more piece that I think when we pray, and there have been very interesting, you call them, they're, they're not scientifically proven, but interesting observations that what communities pray someone is ill and they know they're being prayed for. There is 
something there in terms of the person picking up on the energy of prayer. I just read an anecdote in a book I picked up. I don't usually read these, but it's actually quite good about Jewish spirituality by a Rabbi Spitz. And he shares an anecdote that a woman was in some sort of comatose state. And when she came out of it, she said, I felt the members of my congregation praying and she named them. And she said, but where were the Weisses? And her husband said, oh, they were actually abroad and they didn't know you were in this state. And Something there really resonated, this idea that somehow the prayers we say send hope, resilience, energy. Maybe Yaakov is praying and that's sending out to his wives and children who are afraid. It shifts something. I do believe it sends something out, like you say, to the community, to the world, to the atmosphere, to God, right? There's something positive in that energy that we send out. Well, I want to thank you very, very much for being so candid and so honest. I'm going to tell everybody this was not the discussion that Nechama had prepared for. I uh, advocated <laughs> that nice word. I want to use a, a, a right? Strong-armed. Uh, let's not use that term, no. but certainly uh, pleaded. I felt that uh, what we had and said was, uh, the other would have been fine, but this was, I think, very authentic and reflects the Torah that we're in in many ways. And I think that you really captured the tension of how your perspective on Torah and the Jewish people has been affected by what's going on. And uh, I think that's very real. And it's it's very hard, but it's very real. And so I want to thank you very much for sharing what you shared. I'm just going to end with a Rav Cook, Rav Cook, who really, you know, was hopeful that we would not need military might to, he, he felt that pacifism, right, spirituality, that was the way to enter the land and live in the land. And he has a beautiful teaching where he says, Essentially, I'm going to paraphrase, but the, you know, real tzaddikim or people who are righteous or are looking for righteousness do not complain or sink into darkness. They add to the light. They do not sink into evil, but they add goodness. They do not sink into ignorance. They add wisdom. They do not sink into heresy, but they add belief. And I think that's what I've been trying to do, right? Not sink into or get caught up in darkness, evil, ignorance, but really for myself, add to the light. And I think Yaakov is trying to do that as well, right, in this week's Parsha. I think it's a beautiful challenge. I've definitely been sinking, but uh, still trying to hold on. I feel like there's some guardrails there, or whatever the term is, to try to grab onto. So thank you very, very much for, I think, a very hopeful challenge that you've given us through Rav Cook's words and your own. And of course, uh, as we're sitting here today, we hope and pray for the safety and well-being for our soldiers, for the people in Israel, for the Jews everywhere. And may, I'm hoping and praying by the time you all listen to this, things will already be looking a lot brighter. And hopefully the hostages will be returned as well. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.